All right, well, we're taking some time this morning uh, just to focus our hearts and minds again on what Christmas is about. And we've been taking the last few weeks to do that as a church. Uh, this is kind of the crescendo or the, the, the final, final one because Christmas is tomorrow, obviously. And so we're excited to uh, finish this series up with, with one more exploration of what Jesus has done uh, in his life and in his death and resurrection for us and what the birth of Jesus means for us and how that changes us. That's kind of been the theme of what we've been exploring together. And for the last two weeks, we've looked at two things so far. The first is that Jesus is our king. And we explored a couple weeks ago what it means for Jesus to be king. And primarily that means that we uh, follow him. We, we, are, we do what he tells us to do. He's the boss, we're not. And, uh, and we have to submit our lives to him uh, to be in a right relationship with him. And that's, that was the first week. The second week, last week, we looked at what it means for Jesus to be Emmanuel, which is a word that means God with us. And we looked primarily at what it means for Jesus to be both fully God and fully man in one person. That Jesus was a man is never really questioned in history, but the fact that he was fully God is something that Christians firmly believe and must believe and in being fully God and fully man, Jesus is our mediator. He's the one who can truly stand between us and God the Father and represent us before God the Father and make salvation possible for us. And so that's what we explored last week. And today we're looking at one more major implication of Jesus's birth, although there's many more we could explore. We just took three weeks this year to do this. But the final one we wanna look at is found in Luke chapter two, and primarily we're looking at uh, verse 14, uh, but we'll read 13 and 14 just to, to get some context. And it really has to do with how Jesus reconciles us to God and reconciles us to each other. That there is both a vertical dimension of, of forgiveness and, and peace with God that we have with God because of Christ, which is mainly what we looked at last week and how that was possible. And today we want to see that we actually have peace with each other or can have peace with each other because of Jesus. And here's, here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a sentimental person. You, you know that. You're all laughing at that. So I'm not sentimental. I really don't like uh, the sentimental parts of Christmas. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not my favorite thing in the world. Um, Hallmark movies make me sick. You know, that's all, that's all true. Now, if you love them, love them. That's fine. I'm not judging you. I told you a couple weeks ago I watched The King's Coronation and you all judged me. So you can watch Hallmark movies and I can judge you. That's how this works. Uh, just kidding. But, but we all know in the real world, in a world in which um, sin exists, uh, where people are not perfect, where people are not sin sinless, uh, we have problems. And they don't get resolved in an hour necessarily. Right? They, this, there's actually problems in the world and most of those problems uh, can really be boiled down to people disliking and having problems with other people. And, and that is the reality of the world. And, and so what Jesus did as he came into the world is, yes, to give us salvation in, in our relationship with God on that vertical level, but he also came to bring peace to us on the, on the horizontal level between fellow human beings. And that's the point that actually the angels pick up on in their announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds outside Bethlehem. 
Look at verses 13 and 14 of Luke 2. Here's what it says. So the angel announces, one angel announces the birth of Jesus, who would be our savior and born in the city of David. And then it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. So now there's countless numbers of angels in the sky. And here's what they're doing. They are praising God and saying, here's what they're saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the announcement of Jesus' birth by the angels to these shepherds near Bethlehem was a message of God's glory and a message of God's peace. But, but let's notice this because what they say is significant. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. This is not just peace in heaven, right? Like we have peace with, with the God of heaven. We do. But we do because Jesus mediates for us. But what the angels are announcing here is that there is actually peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. That means that peace can be experienced among us in our relationships together. The, the peace of Jesus works its way towards us and God, and it also works its way towards us and others. That's what this phrase on earth and among those means. It's, it's something that is a reality that can be experienced through Jesus and, and, in, this, and in this world. Not perfectly, because we're sinners, but it's possible through Christ. Notice also that he, he says that this, the angels say that this peace is among those with whom he, God, is pleased. So that's important because the, the peace that can be experienced in this world is experienced among those specific people with whom God is pleased. Now, what does that mean? Well, the, the answer to that is, I think that the, the, those who he is pleased are those who are saved through Jesus. We have to be right with God so that we can be right with others. God is pleased with us as we, tr- as we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and see that forgiveness happen on the vertical level. Those who are right with God can know and are called to know the, and enabled to actually be able to live in peace with not only God, but with others as well. So the peace that we have from God is, is seen very clearly in the whole story of Jesus coming to earth and being our mediator. But the Apostle Paul summarizes that really clearly in Romans 5, 1, where he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, now that word means made right with God. We're, we're reconciled to God. So since we've been justified by faith, so by trusting Jesus, that's how we become justified. He says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then down in verse 11 of chapter 5, he goes on to say that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there was once a broken relationship between us and God because of our sin that has now been reconciled or healed because of the work of Jesus and us trusting him for that work. 
And so the point is, is that Jesus has reconciled us to God. That's the vertical level that we're seeing in the Bible. But let's not miss what the angels are telling the shepherds. That peace is, is between us and God, sure, but it's also between those of us on earth and among us. So if our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that peace is only about me and God and has nothing to do with me and you or you and them or whatever else dimension we want to talk about, if that's our view, if it's only between us and God and has nothing to do with you and me, then we have actually a limited understanding of what Jesus came to do. He came to bring peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so if Jesus makes you and me right with him, with the Father, he also makes us right with each other. He can. And that's actually what Jesus came to do. The Bible tells us he came to bring peace. He tells us that in uh, the book of Ephesians, that we are to have peace between our fellow human beings. That means practically that we are to be at peace with our spouse, live in that peaceful relationship. We are to have peace with our mothers-in-law. God help us, right? (laughs) We're to have peace between us and our children in, in an ideal world. We're to have peace between us and our fellow Christians. Paul explains the vertical relationship we have with God in chapter five, but in Romans chapter 12, he explains that the gospel stretches out not just between us and God, but between us and each other as well. And in Romans 12, 16, and uh, through about uh, verse 20, Paul writes these words. He says, live in harmony with one another. Now let's not miss why he's saying this. He's not painting a Hallmark movie type of picture of of the world. He's, He's telling us that there are implications for trusting in Jesus that do stretch to relationships with each other. And we are to live in harmony with one another. That's the goal. It's difficult. It's not, Paul's not pretending that this is an easy thing to do. He in fact goes on to tell us in these verses, right after that he says that, he gives us three ways that we we should be uh, reorienting our hearts and minds towards other people so that that harmony and peace is possible. Number one, he says, right after live in harmony with each other, he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not be haughty. Now that's an old fashioned word to basically mean don't feel like you're above other people. Don't act like you've got everything figured out and everyone else is just a schmo who doesn't get it. Right? Don't be haughty. Don't have in your mind this mentality that I'm better, I'm higher up, I don't, you know, these, all these other people are fools. Instead, we're to associate with the lowly. That means the humble, those who are with us on this journey and recognize that we are also lowly people. So to live in harmony with each other means we, we reorient our minds through the gospel of Jesus Christ to understand our place under him so we're not haughty. We're not, we're not prideful. We're not believing we're above others. Secondly, he then goes on to say, right after that, he says, never be wise in your own sight. Never be wise in your own sight. 
This is another way we need to reorient ourselves. Again, when we're at, when we're at discord with others, we always want to blame them for the problem. But Paul is actually drawing us to ourselves and saying, listen, are you thinking about yourself correctly? Don't be haughty and don't be wise in your own sight. So in other words, to not be wise in your own sight means that you don't believe you're always correct. Because in fact, you may not be correct and I may not be correct in any given conflict. What we are to do to be wise is to listen with sound judgment Listen clearly and understand what we're talking about before making a judgment. It doesn't mean that at the end of the day, you're not on the right side of an argument. But to be wise in your own sight is to jump to conclusions that are actually maybe not in alignment with reality. So we need to listen. That's why the Bible says be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Because we need to listen and understand and then we can pursue peace. And then the third way he gives us to pursue peace and to live in harmony with each other is to repay no one evil for evil, but to give thought uh, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, we need to stop playing the, well, you did this to me, so I'm gonna do this to you game. That game never ends well. Everybody loses that game. So we have, to, we have to actually see that when someone does evil to us, we don't have to pretend that it's not evil. We don't have to say that it's good when it's not. But we don't repay someone evil for evil. Two wrongs don't make a right. That's biblical. And, and so what, what we need to do is we need to reorient our hearts and our minds so that we can live at peace. And then he concludes this section, essentially, he says a lot more after this that we could explore, but for sake of time, we'll just finish with this line. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he starts with live in harmony, and then he ends with, he gives us three ways to do that, and then he says, okay, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So what does that mean? Well, this is the call of the Christian life as we trust in Jesus and have our relationship with God settled through him and we're justified by faith because of him, we're also called to live at peace, peaceably with all. But I I love actually that Paul puts a caveat on that because again, he's writing to real people in a real world. He's writing to you and me in, in essence, right? People that actually have to wrestle with, is it possible to be at peace? And he, he actually says that, if it's possible, implying that it may not be possible, but so long as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So here's, here's the caveat. In a fallen world, peace may not always be possible because there are, it's, because reconciliation is a two-way street. It requires two parties, two groups of people or two individuals to be at peace it may not be possible, but what Paul's point is, and let's not miss this, again, he's turning it on us. He's not making us point to all the problems in the world uh, or outside of us. He's making us look at ourselves. And what he's saying is, is that we should never be in discord with others because it's our problem. In other words, he's saying, if you can't be at peace, don't let it be because you're unwilling to make peace. 
And if both Christians come at it from the same direction and go, well, I'm not going to stand in the way of peace and I'm not going to stand in the way of peace, then guess what? You're going to have peace because that's how it works. Now, you may still have to work out the implications of all that, but peace is possible if both people come at it from the same perspective, desiring to be right with each other. The Bible actually calls us to look at ourselves on this issue over and over again. In fact, Jesus makes this clear in his own teaching as he taught his disciples about these issues. And he makes a very blunt and even frightening statement in the Gospel of Matthew. And he tells us essentially that, that we are called as people who are right with God. That's, the, that's the, first pr- the first thing, right? We can't have this if we're not right with God. But if we're right with God, then that propels us, moves us, pushes us towards grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with each other. And one example of this, there's a couple that I thought about going to, but again, you know, time here. I don't have all the time in the world. But I wanted to take us to, we could go to Matthew 6, but I'm going to take us to Matthew uh, 18. And, And here I think is a really amazing thing that Jesus does. So in Matthew 18, verse 21 through 35, it begins with this. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter is asking a real world question. A question that you've asked, I'm sure at some point, at least in your heart. Certainly a question I've asked in my heart. How many times do I have to forgive this bozo? That's, that's the question. Really, like how many times does this person have to wrong me and I forgive him? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now it's important to know this. Jesus is not giving us a literal number. He is basically saying to Peter, you think that seven times is a lot? Uh, no, you just keep multiplying that out. And the, basically his point is clear, right? There is no end to the times we forgive. I was just talking to a friend of mine, a guy named David Pinckney, who's a mentor to me and uh, called me up this week. He and I were talking about just what's going on in our, in our churches and in our lives and all these things. And um, he and I were just sharing some, some things that had been hurtful in the last year. And um, he was... He, he basically took me to this verse and he said, listen, when, when Jesus says to forgive 77 times, he's saying that forgiveness is a consistent thing that has to happen over and over in our hearts. And he told me a story about a guy that had really hurt him, one of his best friends that had hurt him very deeply. And he said, I, have, I still have moments years later, years after the fact, where it, it wells back up and I get angry again. And those are the moments he said to me, where I have to remember that forgiveness is a consistent thing continually. And when those emotions of anger or, or hurt or whatever come up and well up, he says, I have to hand those to the Lord and say, I've forgiven this man and I will continue to forgive this man. And just that conversation with him was so helpful to me. And, and so that's what Jesus is saying there. But then he goes on to tell us a story. He, he puts it into a, into a scenario that we can kind of wrap our heads around. Verse 23, he says, Therefore the king, 
the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that doesn't mean much to us, um, but a talent is the equivalent of 20 years worth of wages. Just one talent. So this guy owes the king 10,000 times 20 years, right? This is insane, like 200,000 years or lifetimes, really, worth of, worth of work. It's an insane amount of, of money that this, this guy owes the king. Jesus is saying this to make a, a very clear point. This is an unpayable debt. This is a debt that could never be repaid. Verse 25, he says, and since he could not pay, yeah, his master ordered him, this man who owed him this money, to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, Jesus lived in a much harsher world than we do, okay? And so the Roman Empire, if you owed some, some crazy amount of money, you were just sold off. And so were just your wife and your kids. And every, I mean, pretty brutal world. We don't live there, thankfully. But that's, what, that's how it was. Okay, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, begging him, have patience with me and I will, and I will pay you everything. That is a ludicrous statement, a ridiculous statement, and it could never actually be done. It's, it's meant to shock us into, yeah, right, you can't pay this debt. And so out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, are you picking up on the point here? I'm sure you are. That represents us and God. We owe a debt to God we could never repay and we plead with him for forgiveness and he gives us grace and clears the debt. He doesn't lower the debt. The king doesn't say, well, you owe me like 200,000 years worth of money, but I'll make it 20 years, which would have been an impressive reduction of the debt, right? But he doesn't even do that. He says, you know what? We're clear. We're good. And that's justification by faith. We are justified, clean slate between us and God as we trust in Jesus. Okay, so what happens next? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii was a day's wage. So what an average person would make in one day's work. And so here's a guy who owes this this servant who had just been forgiven 200,000 years worth of debt is now encountering a fellow servant who owes him a hundred days worth of, worth of income, which is not nothing, right? A hundred days is like a third of the year. That's a significant amount of debt. But what happens? Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you which is not a ludicrous statement because while 100 days worth of debt is a lot, it's not insurmountable. And so here's what happens. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to their master, all that, they had, all that had taken place. 
Then his master summoned the servant and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So here's, here's Jesus's conclusion. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. That's terrifying, actually. But the point is clear. If we've been forgiven by God of offending him far, in a far greater way than any human could ever offend us, and he forgives all the debt we owe to him because we ask him for that. That's how we become Christians. We ask God for forgiveness of our sins. How wicked is it then, according to Jesus, for us to withhold forgiveness from others? Now, I know that these verses can sound like God is dangling salvation over our heads and saying, I won't forgive you until you forgive. But I think what Jesus is actually communicating to us is this, that that if we are truly reconciled to God through faith in Jesus— then we can never sit comfortably by while we are holding on to some bitterness, resentment, or living in unforgiveness towards others. It's not that salvation is conditional upon us forgiving, but that forgiveness towards those who wrong us is the fruit of being forgiven. The point is, is that if you're, a, if you're living in persistent unforgiveness, you're not a forgiven person. Forgiven people forgive people. That's the point. It's a demonstration that we have been forgiven by God when we forgive others. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Especially when there's a lot of emotional hurt that's been caused by someone else. So how do we forgive? How do we actually do this? If the Bible tells us we must, how do we do it? Well, I'm going to just take us real quick to Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Here's how Paul tells us to do this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Those two verses tell us very simply what we're to do. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it is simple. Here's the answer. We take out the garbage of our sinful responses, put it to the curb. And then instead, we take in that which is righteous from Jesus. We can't do this alone. We can't do this in our own power. We can't do it by our own strength. We must do it through the grace of God working in us by the Spirit. But what we cannot do or live comfortably in as Christians is to live in the festering stink of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or malice. But instead, we are to forgive from the heart. And if you cannot do that in your own strength, as none of us can, we trust the Lord Jesus to help us. And just like my friend David said, it's a continual cycle that happens. It's not a one-time thing that we just put it away and it never surfaces again. No, it keeps coming back often. And so we keep doing our part. We put away the things that are uh, harmful. 
We put away what's on our side, which is our resentments, and we give them to the Lord Jesus and let him clean those out of our life. Jesus came into the world to bring us peace between us and God primarily, but then between us and each other. And Christmas is a season each year where we are reminded of this. And I think we need to be reminded of this because Christmas, by its nature, puts us around people we don't necessarily like, right? And sometimes the tensions can actually be worse at Christmas because we have to hang out with people we'd rather not. So let's keep in mind that Jesus Christ came into the world to bring peace among those with whom he is pleased. He does that first in reconciling us to God and then he does that in helping us to be reconciled to each other. That's what Christmas points us to. And Jesus Christ, by his grace and through his spirit living and working within us, enables us to do this. It's again, it's not white knuckling our way to this as in our own strength. It's trusting in him to help us. And then we can do what Paul tells us in Romans 14, to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Peace is something that must be pursued. And that's one of the reasons Jesus came. May God help us. May he help us to live in grace and peace towards him and others. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your amazing grace. The grace you've given us that has justified us before you that we are at peace with you through Jesus and we pray uh, that we would actually see that there are implications of this that go far beyond this into our relationships with each other, even the hard relationships that we have, that we may actually have to be around people today or tomorrow that we don't want to be around, but you can help us to love that person or those people. And we pray you would. We pray that you would keep these things in the forefront of our minds, not just today and tomorrow, but moving forward through life, that you would help us to be at peace with each other. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take.